Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. I have the passage printed on your insert. I was especially blessed by Evan's hymn this week as I looked over it. He gave it to Jeannie, our choir director, a couple weeks ago for our consideration. And as soon as I read it, I said, I mean, wow. I mean, this is uh, an amazing thing that God has done through, through you. But this week especially, a very difficult week for our church and many of you here, many of you here, if you've been here for as long as I've been here, you knew Tammy. And so I remember thinking as she, after she had passed away, that line that we sang last, God of ages, come. That's just what we want. Come. That's what we need. And this uh, hymn, I think, captures it beautifully. It's a wonderful uh, testimony to this. I thought also, kind of on the light side of things, you know, for our young people, every once in a while, like my kids, will, they'll worship somewhere else, they'll be with their friends, and they're in a contemporary church, whatever that means. I mean, we're contemporary. I mean, we're here. But now, young people, you get to go to your friends and say, we are at Redeemer on the cutting edge of contemporary Christian music. 2015 today, nobody did that today except for our church, as far as I know. But praise God for this hymn, its timeliness, and I hope that as we uh, go to the Word, we are uh, encouraged again by this timeless truth that God has given us. Uh, Isaiah especially is a book of honesty and hope. Who here doesn't need to be restored? Who here can look back at their years and say, there are no regrets whatsoever? Or I wish I hadn't spent this time doing this? Or maybe you're right here now thinking, I'm in a mess. How on earth can things be different. Well, the God of restoration is the God Isaiah writes about. He's the God of many things, and Isaiah has many running themes about who God is. But one of the themes that will come up over and over again in our time through Isaiah is God's promise to bring restoration. Now, God will speak in ultimate terms about that final restoration that all the people of God will experience, and he puts that out here. It's in the midst of the devastation of sin that he writes, and so to help us to enter the process of maturity in Christ, we see what will come because God's going to work it. We see where we've been, and we're in the middle of that continuum, and God's working in us to restore. That's a a personal thing as well as a corporate thing for the people of God. And we sense this as Isaiah reveals truth to uh, the nation of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament. And as you know, it's a book that's 66 chapters long. And he brings resolution. He'll introduce these themes, and then the resolution comes when he tells us that it is in the Messiah, in Christ, that ultimate resolution, final restoration is found. And we'll go there. We'll see that connection because we have the benefit of the whole book before us, and we see that Jesus has come and the testimony of Christ given to us as well. Here as I read God's Word, I'll start at verse 21 of chapter 1 and read to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get 
relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water and the strong shall become tinder and his work a spark in both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we read of a desperate state of affairs for your people at this time. As Isaiah writes, we see the ravages of sin. We see how many years of rebellion caused them to go after other gods and do unthinkable things. Lord, we confess that sin, when left unchecked, absolutely can run its course in all of our lives. And we see the devastation all around us because of it. Lord, please give us a full sense of your restorative work in Jesus, how you have brought redemption to bear, and that redemption works itself out in restoration, even this side of glory. We thank you for that. Lord, we need your hope. We need your promise. We need the surety of your restorative work in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would make us to be honest by putting our lives under the spotlight of your word to confess and to repent where we need to, just as the passage says. Lord, we want to see Christ. We thank you for this forecast of him in Isaiah and the fulfillment we have in the whole of your word. Pray that that would bring comfort and change to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Among the most popular shows on TV, no doubt, are those shows that take something old and make it new. Many people like the shows where they buy an old house that, you know, was built the turn of the century or some you know, hundreds of years ago, and they, they, it looks like something you just might as well mow down, but instead they come in and spend countless hours and spend lots of money to restore this old house, and they turn it into a beautiful house, and it's a long process, and it's ugly at first because they have to break stuff down, throw stuff away, tear stuff apart in order to build it back up and restore it, uh, but it's a beautiful uh, culmination of the show when you see what it looks like at the beginning and you just, you got to wait till the end. You can't ever leave in the middle of one of those shows because you got to see what it's going to look like at the end. Uh, for my liking, I prefer those with, with cars. You know, the, they, they find some uh, old 67 Camaro that's in a barn and it's been there, you know, for 30 years. Someone forgot about it with a, with a, a tarp over it and you pull it off and you see what it is. And yes, it's got rust on it and the window's broken and there's torn upholstery, things like this. But then they take it to the shop and then they restore it and they tear out some of that old stuff and they put in the new stuff and then it looks beautiful and you have a picture of, of restoration at the end. The beginning looks awful, but the end, you have that restoration. That, brothers and sisters, is the story of the Bible. Uh, it's the story that Isaiah is telling to the people of God, and it transcends through the ages. Now, there's a particular situation he's addressing, which we'll see as we go through the passage. But see that the God who restores is your God. 
uh, your Savior has brought redemption, and that redemption yields restoration for us. Uh, He didn't just save us from our sins so we don't go to hell. He's given us abundant life, and he renews in us. He restores in us, and continually he, he renews us all the way till that final renewal that we look forward to in glory. The knowledge of what will come will help us in the middle between the destruction and the final restoration. That's the story that repeats itself for the people of God over and over, and it repeats itself in our lives, personally. We understand a bit of what's happened here with Israel because we understand sin. We're sinners, and we get it. We get what the ravages of sin do. Now, everybody here will have a different story to tell. You're in a different place, a different background. There's things that you need restoration concerning. There's no restoration project that God cannot complete in Christ. So wherever you are, there is hope for that restoration that Jesus provides. You can't restore yourself. The old house doesn't fix itself, and the old car can't reconstitute itself. It requires outside work. And God does that work in Christ, and he continues it in the Spirit, and we'll experience that ourselves in our walk with him. But we have to recognize what has caused this destruction and how it is that we are restored. If you look at the passage, you get a sense of how bad things are for the people of God. The northern kingdom has already been taken captive by, uh, assimilated by the Assyrian Empire. Uh, the southern kingdom, which is made up of just a few tribes, and you have, they call themselves Judah, Jerusalem's their capital. Uh, it looks like they're next in line for this, uh, this period of captivity under the Assyrians who are moving their way. And so Isaiah addresses the sins of God's people so they could repent, so that they could see restoration in their time. We learn from this that the ravages of sin are real and formidable for sure. You cannot ignore them. But God is perpetually about his work of restoration through redemption. Israel's glory was fading for sure. Now you have Judah, the only portion of that nation left and recognizable. And we catch a glimpse of this reality. The ravages of sin are real and formidable. That's what took hold of the people. We see this in Isaiah's description of them as he writes. What do we mean by the ravages of sin? Uh, The ravages, uh, that's the damaged or destructive effect of something that has caused or come through. Verse 21, and we see it. How the faithful city has become a whore. Isaiah's not shy about saying the truth. This is a good way to describe a city, Jerusalem, which is taken as a part for the whole. Speaking of the city means the people themselves. Uh, they're, They're represented by the city. And he calls them this because that's the ultimate sign of unfaithfulness. Married to one, but going after others. And that's what the faithful city has become. It was a faithful city that was faithful or trustworthy as a covenant people, worshiping God, but they left him to worship other gods. And so the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, at one time representing God's character of justice, fairness, equity, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. You see, sin runs a course. It doesn't start out right into the worst of it. It's those little forays into sin that we think we have under control or they won't affect us much, or affect other people much. But it starts to snowball. I mean, isn't that the effect? I mean, sin is insatiable. It it always feels good and promises a lot at first, whatever it is, but eventually it, it tries to kill you. I mean, that's the goal, ultimately, is to kill. Sin is the vestige of Satan, and Satan's 
main work is to kill and to destroy. And that's what sin does. But it always looks so promising at first. It looks like I, we, could, we could control this. I, I could keep this part of my life uh, okay. And then it blows up into other areas and affects everybody around us. And we just see the ravages of it in a given life. And you see it in a community or you see it in a church and families. And that's what sin does. That's always what sin does. And it's insatiable. It's never satisfied. It needs more. So it goes from a bit of disloyalty on the part of the people of God to now where we see it full-blown, and they're called murderers. Look at verse 22. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Think about that imagery. Silver, you see the metal silver. There could be dross in the silver, and you'd still call it silver. But it gets to the point where there's too much dross, and you no longer call it silver. The commentator Moyer said it well. Silver can contain some alloy and still be silver. But silver, which has become dross, has suffered total degeneration. And really, that's what he's saying. I'm looking at you now, and I see no difference between you and the world around you. Your identity is more lined up with everything around than with me, your covenant God. Your best wine mixed with water. I mean, the best wine that took the longest to make uh, and should be most appreciated, save for the best occasions, it's mixed with water now. It's not valuable any longer. Your witness isn't valuable any longer, he says, Isaiah says to the people of God. And we can become like this. As sin comes into our lives, even as believers, we become watered down, become filled with impurities, at least from the outward appearance. We may be united to Christ by faith, but there's something about our lives that still gives off the picture that we're not. Verse 23 says, this is as uh, condemnatory as you can get when now all the leaders represent this kind of corruption Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. People often want to say that our leaders are the reason we are who we are. Is that true? Maybe the leaders are who we are. Do you ever think about that? We complain about the leadership and how they're making it all better. No, no. They're just the sum total of us. And the princes, the leaders, those charged with certain watch care... They don't bring justice any longer to the most needy among us. Now, the theme of the fatherless and the widow's cause, that will come up over and over again, Isaiah, so I will pick that up again. I want us to focus on the ravages of sin and God's restoration in this portion of Isaiah. It says in verse 23, your princes are rebels, the ones who are supposed to keep peace and order, they're rebellious, and companions of thieves the people that are to be trustworthy to maintain a certain decorum and watch care, they're with thieves. They're in it for themselves. That's the underlying sin here. It's self, selfishness, self-worship, uh, self-provision, self, self, self. That's what drives all of this. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. Uh, people like bribes and gifts in this capacity as leaders, they're just in it for themselves. And if they're in it for themselves, eventually they're going to run over people to get to a place to provide for themselves. That's just what happens. That's what sin does. When you go after sin, it starts to, uh, you want satisfaction from it. And so eventually the people you love the most, you're ready to just run them right over for that sin. And it happens in the leadership of this nation at this time. The princes are described in this corrupt way. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. I mean, orphans who need the most watch care, they don't care about. They should be watching out for them, but they're not. 
They don't bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. There's no, there's no social net here for anybody. If, if, if a woman lost her husband in this agrarian society, what was she going to do to take care of herself? There had to be help. And the princes, the leaders, those who are given watch care, don't care at all because they're too busy seeking after themselves. That is a picture of what sin ultimately does. It runs over even the least of these. You know, thinking of the ravages of sin, what always comes to my mind, and we see it enough in the Midwest, you see it on TV, but I saw it with my own eyes. In 2006, we drove through Kansas to get to Colorado. We took the 54 route, go down to Wichita, go across. It's a bit more scenic than I-70. Now that I-70 has portions that are 80 miles an hour, I don't care about scenic, but before, I would go down the more scenic route, and I would go across, and you would come through the little town of Greensburg, Kansas. And when you go through Greensburg, there was a, a, there was a, a gas station you could stop at. That's 2006. 2007, coming the same way this next year, nothing left. I mean, the city of 1,000 people. It was a small Kansas town, not unlike many iconic Kansas small towns. It had a gas station. It had a little supermarket. It had a school, houses all around of various styles, and old trees, old oak trees. It had been there for a long time. It probably was a more prosperous city at one time when the railroad went through and picked up crops, and there, wasn't, there weren't so many co-ops around. But now, this next year, that same place that we remember driving through, like many other towns you drive through, was absolutely mowed down because in May of 2007, just a few months before we drove through, an EF5 tornado went exactly through Greensburg. And it snapped oak trees as wide as these pillars, some wider, snapped them like toothpicks down at the base. It was scary to see the power that one of those tornadoes could have and what destruction it could, it could reap on this place. Totally mowed down. And that is what sin does. And that's all sin wants to do in your life. Now, it won't mow through like an EF5 at times in that speed. It might take time, but eventually it will wipe out everything it can wipe out. And that's really what it feels like when Isaiah comes to preach, that there are the ravages of sin all around us, and there will be results for this. You can't avoid it, because sin is that bad, and it's that formidable. John Piper, when he answers the question, what is sin? I love his answer because I think when I think of sinners, hey, we're in church on Sunday. I mean, we're here. We're not really the worst of them, right? No, really, who, those who come to church to worship God should really be, I hope we understand ourselves to be the worst of them. We're coming here to throw ourselves at God's grace, and we believe in God's grace, and we can sing with some confidence because of Jesus. But I think when we think of churchgoers, we're not always thinking about sinners in the worst way, and we're always thinking of those people out there who do the worst sins. But when you listen to the way Piper describes it, he doesn't let anybody. He takes all the biblical data on sin and all the explanation about what sin is, and he answers the question, what is sin, like this. The glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The promises of God, not believed. The commandments of God, not obeyed. That's the one we usually think of. The justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. The presence of God, not prized. The person of God, not loved. I like this definition because it leaves no stone unturned. We have to see the full ravages of what sin has done. As much as I like Piper's question and answer, 
our catechism answers it much more simply. What is sin? Any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And we're all guilty, and it wreaks terrible havoc in our lives. Now, maybe you are uh, hearing this kind of thing for the first time. Maybe the Lord's opening your eyes, and you need to trust in Christ. It could be you're like me. You've been a believer for a while, and you're in constant need of reminder of really what we have been redeemed from in the fullness of that. Recognize that we are accountable, all of us, to a God who is holy, and he cannot ignore sin. He, can't ignore, he cannot ignore the ravages of sin. If you were to look at Google Earth shortly after that tornado happened, you could zoom in all the way down to Greensburg, and you could see the path of destruction that went through it. As God gazes upon the earth, he cannot but see the ravages of sin. It's not something a holy God can ignore. It says in verse 28, gives us a bit of the picture of what will come from this. Rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. The end result for anyone who forsakes the Lord, who turns from the Lord, and the grace he provides, that's part of what you're turning away from when you turn from the Lord. Those who forsake the Lord, they will be consumed. It will catch up. They will feel that wrath that God will pour out. In verse 29 describes a terrible, humiliating scene that's a little bit disconnected from our understanding, so it demands a bit of explanation. In verse 29, For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall, be, you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. The people of Isaiah's day had fallen into a, a kind of worship, kind of like you, the, the Greek gods and the Roman gods, where they would, they would credit a god for giving them crops one year or growing uh, food for them, and they would worship that god. And fertility gods, and this is true not only of their, their own fertility and multiplying as a people, but also the crops and the gardens and the materials that they would get from oak trees and thus. They worship this. And so God's saying, you're worshiping the, the creature rather than the creator, and I will, I will put that on full display, how weak that is, how false that is. That worship is false. They will be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers. There won't be any evergreen here. You can't trust in something other than God, and like a garden without water. Disaster will be false, sinful rebellion. That's what happens. And false religion of any sort is no nourishment. Verse 31 says, The strong, those you think are strong, the strong shall become tinder and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together. The work of the one who's outside of God is actually a spark that turns on them to light them as tinder, and they shall burn together with none to quench them. Those who think they are strong will eventually be shown for their awful weakness unable to stand under the scorching heat of God's judgment, and that's every one of us apart from the grace of God. Sin devastates. We know this from the testimony of Scripture. We know this by the annals of history. We know this in our country. We know this in our lives. Sin is a destroyer of the most formidable potency. But like the evangelist Isaiah... In this message, we find that God is about the work of restoration, and he'll point us to where this restoration finds its root. It's in the redemption of the Messiah in his time to come. 
for us who has come. God, doing the work of restoration through redemption in Christ. God forecasts the day when the ruined will be restored. Uh, Yes, God will bring judgment, but in so doing, he will also bring restoration. Look at verse 24. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Three different names. You have the, the covenant name for God. Yahweh declares, the Lord of hosts, this general term for the magnificence of God, the mighty one of Israel, one of Israel. There are no multiple like Assyria has. There is one God. Ah, I will get my relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. He will purify. He will purge sin. He will start the work of grace that can look difficult at the beginning just like any restoration project. But he'll do his work of purifying and refining. In verse 26 and verse 27, these grace-filled promises and in pictures. Verse 26, and I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. So people living in injustice, in oppression, in difficulty, in, in terrible living, God will restore that at some point. Now, it's not a promise in their immediate lifetime they would see all this, but there's the knowledge that God would do this that would give them the ability to be faithful in the midst of that trial. And that's true in our own lives. We know the ultimate, but we might still be living in the ravages of sin. God can give us freedom from it personally, but we might still feel the effects, and we look forward to that final restoration that will happen. It always happens. God always brings justice. I think sometimes as we look at injustice, we think, how come God hasn't stopped this? Well, first of all, remember, people don't live long lives. Nobody does. Even if you live to be 100, what is that in comparison to all the years of history, let alone eternity? Nothing. Zero. It's barely a drop. So no one escapes the wrath of God for long. Now, whole cultures may look like they thrive for a while, but how long is the longest kingdom that's lasted on earth? A few hundred years? A few dynasties? Still nothing. Everything meets God. Everyone meets God. But God says here that he will bring restoration. In verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. As the book unfolds, we start to see the failures over and over of the people of God in Israel in the Old Testament, and that it becomes almost hopeless as to how can these people who are so rebellious and stiff-necked, like we would be too if we were there, How can they ever practice this kind of justice, this kind of righteousness? And as the book unfolds, as we see as we go through, we'll recognize that more and more it pumps it into the picture of the only one who could provide this fully, Messiah. To drive the people to have faith in God's Messiah to come. That's how we are in favor with God is through Messiah. We need Messiah. We look back and know what Christ has accomplished. And in Christ, we have this peace with him. We have redemption, which promotes our restoration, even this side of glory. Verse 26 again, And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So there's a restoring to what was, but even better yet. Yet you see here this tension between the inevitable wrath that will come. They only got a hundred years longer than the northern kingdom before Assyria and then Babylon and Persia. 
were used of God to bring discipline to them. But they did have time. They, they had some revival, some restoration occurred. But there is this inevitable divine wrath that will come. And then there's a promised divine restoration that will occur. And is still to come. As bad as the situation is, Isaiah says, it will not always be this way. It's God's intention to restore through redemption. Judges here will be restored. Counselors here. Judges, civil leaders. Counselors, spiritual leaders perhaps. Both of these offices were functioning as sick. But God will restore them. If you have judges acting like kings and you have counselors who are like priests, he'll restore with the ultimate king and priest to come. Verse 27, Zion, this descriptor for God's people here in of all, over all time. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Who repent, who acknowledge their sins and turn from it unto God. Redemption promotes repentance, which promotes restoration. In Isaiah, the prophecy builds. It becomes clear where redemption comes from. In Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Original destruction came through the first Adam. God sent the second Adam, Jesus, to undo what happened with the first. And when we rest in the second Adam, Christ, we have redemption. And then he brings restoration. Think of all that happened at the fall. When Adam fell, all of creation suffered as a result. So God sends the second Adam to redeem all creation and man as his crown of creation. So all restoration that can be found is found in Christ. It's not just about us personally. It's about all things reconciled to God, restored to God. It's paradise lost and paradise restored in Christ. And that's the picture that Isaiah looks for and longs for and paints for the people of God, and we read with such blessing now. And it's Jesus himself who models this ministry of redemption and restoration. Think about the ministry of Jesus while he is on earth. When he heals people, it's not just a show to show off somehow. It authenticates he's Messiah for sure. And what does Messiah do? Messiah restores. So when a person has a withered hand and he, he opens the hand and heals it, it's, it's restoration. It's salvation for restoration. He doesn't just save us from the, the precipice of hell, but then he renews us and restores us to show his glory in our restored state. We camp too long and, well, I'm safe from hell. But that's not all he has for us. That's not all redemption is meant to do. It's meant to bring restoration to who you are as a human being, which will then shine Christ. It'll shine the Redeemer to everybody and to everywhere, and that's ultimately the goal, the glory of God through the restoration of creation with sinners in particular. Jesus dies on the cross, and he brings the most important restoration, the restoration of our relationship between God and us. We have a dividing wall of separation that because of Christ, the dividing wall comes away, and when we lay hold of Christ by faith, when we rest in Christ, the base word for restoration, we are redeemed. And now God does the work of transformation. And then Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to do the work of restoration. We call it sanctification which is just the process of growing more and more like Christ as he works by his Spirit in us. So when we 
say words like we did earlier in Psalm 23. I want us to think about God's restoring work. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. In Psalm 51, a prayer we pray often, at least it's laden into the prayers we pray. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. God's about restoration. He even tells us when someone falls into sin in the church, it doesn't say kick them when they're down. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. How are you in need of restoration, dear brothers and sisters? What aspects of your life are in ruins right now and need repair? What about your current situation is showing the ravages of sin? Now, if you have not known Christ at this point, if you don't know Jesus and your life is an utter mess, you cannot fix it. You must come to Christ. Now, coming to Christ doesn't mean the ravages go away. There's still much there that has to be tended to and dealt with. But you can't deal with that before you're right with God. So your relationship with God has to be restored by faith in Christ, him as your substitute. From that point, you can start to address the effects of the ravages of sin in your life. That's when restoration happens. But maybe you've been a believer for a long time, and there's just little seeds that have been allowed to grow, and there's ruin. There's ruin in pockets of your life right now. There are relationships that are too far gone. There are sinful habits that have damaged you, damaged others around you, and rendered you feeling crippled as a believer. Other areas in our church community of disease and sickness in our midst. And I mean the way we relate, our relationships, the functions we have, the mission God's called us. Are there attitudes or behaviors that are unjust or oppressive to others? They're so self-centered, they're overriding and overrunning other people. How are we caring for the least of these as a congregation? For ignoring the weak and the needy, we must be climbing over them in some way, perhaps. The redemption that we have been provided through Christ gives us an opportunity for repentance, a repentance he must drive. And that repentance leads to restoration. If the truth about, this, about sin resonates with you, if you hear the ravages of, about the ravages of sin, say, yes, that's me, that's my problem, that's my dilemma. Repent and rest on Christ. And he will do his work of renewal in his time. And he will finish it. Own the sin that is yours. Ask God for repentance. God is carefully working for our full restoration through Christ. That is what he is about. And one other prophet, Joel, said to a people who are hearing this similar message, said to a people something I hope encourages you. Maybe you're older in the faith or you're old in, the, in years and you're wondering, how can I recoup that which has been wasted or those ravages that I've caused? How can I go back? What can I do? You can't. But Joel says, speaking for God, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust had eaten. Tonight, we're going to give a report on the Omaha Nation mission trip. We've been going to this uh, Native American reservation now for three years, and it's a tough ministry. Lots of darkness there, lots of difficulty, lots of despair. I remember when we first started going to Juarez 13, 14 years ago, 
and, and it was kind of a beginning ministry. Th- this, is, this is so much darker. I can't even describe to you the hopelessness that exists among many people that live there. Well, our first year, we met a man who's near 80, and his name, ironically, is Grumpy. We call him Grumpy. Now, he got the name before he became a believer, and he, could, he likes to play the part a little bit. But about five years ago, he met the pastor of our PCA church there in Grand Island, Nebraska. He saw him because he lives not far from where the church is. And over the course of time, God gave opportunity for Pastor Todd to talk to Grumpy. And over time, he's able to share the gospel with Grumpy. And Grumpy said to him multiple times that he thought it was too late for him. You know, God, what could I do for God? What, what, what would God want to do with me? And in that kind of mindset, which many older people can have if they've lived their whole life, and they look back and they can't think of any fruit, anything good that came from it, and now they're facing death, really, and they, they don't come to Christ because they think they can't. And God shed his grace upon this man, and he came to Christ, and he wanted to serve immediately. And Todd said they had to kind of hold him back because he was still rough, but he wanted to serve in all these capacities in a small church. He wanted to go on these trips to the Omaha Nation. For several years he went before he, we came and met him. He'd been going for several years. He could barely move anymore. Two fake knees, uh, a fake hip, but he had carpentry in his background. He would stand there, and he'd kind of gruffly tell everybody what to do, and he'd help people with their houses. He would talk to the people there, and he would, in his own way, shed the light of Christ, in the years that God gave him. Yes, locusts ate away a lot of years in his life, but God can restore them. And over those years, he's incapacitated now, but over those years, he was able to show, manifest the grace that saved him. And God doesn't care how much time he has for you. He will do his will, and if you feel like it's already been a waste or I can't, this can't be repaired, God can repair and restore anything. And he can multiply the fruit that comes from the short days you may have. Nobody is outside of the reach of God's restorative work. Nobody. Let's pray. Lord God, you indeed restore. I pray for those in need of restoration to you, for those who have never trusted in Christ and followed you. I pray for that necessary initial restoration with you, their Creator through Jesus. Give them repentance and faith in Christ. Cause them to rest in him. For those of us who have been believers for some time, borrowing from David, I pray for those of us in that category. Restore, Lord, please, to us the joy of your salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit. Amen.